ever since uh, she was a little girl, she had dreamed of being a mom. It's like just like every every little girl, I'd say. She dreams of be- meeting a man, falling in love, having a family, starting a, starting a new life with a with a happily ever after fairy tale type of an end. Just like I'd say, just about every girl. Played house with her dolls. She had a daddy and a mommy. The Hebrew version of Barbie and Ken doing all that she could do to, to uh, pretend the wedding day and all of these things. One day she finally did meet a man. He was a little bit older than she was, but that was okay. She fell in love with him. She was a beautiful girl. She could have had uh, just about any, any man I think that, that she wanted, and this man snatched her up. And life was good for a little while, but soon it became apparent that something was wrong in her life. Something was very wrong. She had almost everything she wanted. She was married to a man who was very wealthy. She was married to a guy who loved her and took care of her. But there was one thing missing, and that was that she realized after some time, probably after several tries, she couldn't get pregnant. She couldn't have babies. For all of her married life, Sarah felt incomplete. She felt like she was less of a woman because she couldn't have children like all the other moms in Ur, or like all the other moms in Haran. And finally, they move away from that place and they begin traveling to this new land called Canaan. And even then, as she meets ladies and as she, uh, you know, quickly, you know, when you introduce someone, you, you introduce yourself and then the wife and quickly here come the kids and here come Hagar, or I'm sorry, here come Sarah and Abram introducing themselves as they travel around and there are no children to introduce. Abram's name means father, great father. You imagine, hey, my name is great father. Oh, you must be a great dad. Uh, where are your kids? Well, we don't have any. Um, it's been that way forever. Then God comes along about 10 years ago and promises them a son. And the impossible has just been promised to them. God came and said, you will have a son. And he's going to be the start of a great nation. For 10 years now, they've been waiting for that promise to come true. But now it's been 10 years and they still have no children. I can imagine Sarah's attitude begins to develop. I'm the problem. I'm the one that, that that's causing it to not work. I'm the reason God's plan is not working. I'm too old. She's, she, was, uh, she was 65 when the promise was given. She's now 75 years old. Of course, a 75-year-old woman is not expecting to have a baby, but God had come and planted this little seed of hope in her heart that maybe it could happen. Somehow it was going to happen, but now she begins to even lose sight of that hope and, and wonder, is it me? Am I too broken, too old? I really want God's plan to work, but I must be the one that's preventing it from happening. There's a man named Ginsberg who quotes a, a Jewish tradition. It says, before Abram and Sarah came to live in the promised land, they regarded their childlessness as punishment for not living in the land, but now they had been in the land for 10 years and they still had not They began to question, what's the problem? What's wrong with us? What, why is God judging us? And, it's not so much that way now, but in Bible times, 
childbearing was the sign of God's blessing and the lack of children in your home was the sign of God's punishment. That God was angry with you for some reason. And if God was happy with you, He would give you lots and lots of children. And that, that, that philosophy has changed uh, over time. And today we don't, our, our culture doesn't view children as that way, as a blessing or as a, as a, as a curse from the Lord. Uh, but we, we, we see that in, in all through many of the Bible stories. Then last week, as we saw in chapter 15, Abram gets a little bit more faith and learns that the son is going to be not an adopted son, not this Eliezer of his, of Damascus from his household, but this son is going to be his biological son. It's going to come from his own body. And again, that hope that is almost like a candle that has almost died out begins to reignite and there's a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a glimpse of, of hope there now. More hope. More clues, more faith. But up to this point, Sarah hasn't been included in God's promise. I think she kind of assumed, right? Because if my husband has promised I'm going to have a, he's going to have a son, I'm his wife, it's going to be me, right? But after 75 years, you begin to wonder about that. She begins to wonder too. She desperately wants this to happen starting to accept and believe now that she is the problem. She is the thing holding her husband back from achieving God's will for his life. Holding her husband back, maybe not able to give her husband the one thing that he really, really, really wants. He's got money. He's got land. He's got a big name. He's got uh, an army. He's got authority and power, but he doesn't have a son. I think Sarah begins to look at herself as broken, as damaged. Romans 4.19 even talks about how it says it talks about the deadness of Sarah's womb. Hebrews 11 tells us that she was past age for childbearing. None of this had slipped by Sarah. I'm sure as well-meaning people would come around and as it even happens today as uh, ladies for one reason or another not able to have children and people come around and innocently ask and not realizing but just saying, you know, well, why don't you want to have kids? She and Sarah in her heart saying, you have no idea how badly we want to have kids. And God has not allowed us to do so. Then one day she realizes there's another way. This might be the one, the thing that makes it all work. I've got a, I've got a servant. Back when we left Egypt, or when we left for Egypt, and when uh, Abram uh, told Pharaoh that I wasn't his wife, that I was just his sister, and Abram uh, basically gave me away uh, to be the wife of the Pharaoh. Uh, one of the plus things that happened when we left Egypt was that I got this servant girl. Maybe it was while she was in the harem of Pharaoh and, and someone who attended to her and cared for her. But now this Egyptian girl, Hagar, and I always imagine her as this young, uh, attractive Egyptian girl caring for uh, the needs of her mistress, Sarah. Sarah begins to hatch this plan in her mind. Hagar is young and healthy. Hagar could have this baby. After all, the custom would be that if anything that uh, any uh, children that Hagar would have would technically belong to Sarah. And so she begins to form this plan, maybe in her mind at first and not thinking it out loud or speaking it out loud, but then she begins to to really put some 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 uh, skin in, on this skeleton of a plan and saying, you know what, I think this might be what God is wanting. I think this is what God wants us to do. And she begins to uh, dwell on this and dwell on this. And the more she thinks about it, the more it sounds likely this is what God wants. 
This was not very unusual for us, so I say it's one of the most confusing passages in the story. This idea of having a secondary wife is not an unusual concept that we find in this culture. It's not something that God said go ahead and do, but it's something that was very common to have multiple wives. Uh, and, and it was also not uncommon to have what we would call this surrogate child saying that you have the baby, but the baby will actually be mine because you're my slave. And so then then your, your baby is also my son. And that and so this this is not an uncommon type of thing in our day and time. We're going, what woman in her right mind is going to uh, give another woman to her husband and say, I don't please you. I can't give you everything that you want. So here I found her for you. She's young and attractive. Take her for take her for yourself. We'll share you here. But that's exactly what she does. Well, she decides that that is, she becomes very convinced this is how the promised son is going to come. This is how it's going to work. God has kept me from having a child, but I can have a son through Hagar, my servant. And if I can't give Abram a son, I'll find another way. This must be what God intended. We're looking this morning at three pieces of advice simply called bad advice. This, these three pieces of advice are things that we've all heard before, and they sound good, but they're not. They're not complete at the very least. Uh, we maybe have even passed this advice on to other people, but it's actually really bad advice. On the surface, it sounds great, but at best, it's incomplete. And at worst, it ends in disaster. And we're not sure if these ideas were popular during Sarah's time. We don't see these phrasings used in that in this day and time in this culture, but the practice definitely was there. And so we're going to look at these three pieces of bad advice from Sarah's life. Next week we'll flip the story and look at look at this story through Hagar's eyes. But we've already looked at the first the first uh, piece of bad advice. You may have heard it. It kind of sounds spiritual, even you can really. Uh, uh, spiritualize this phrase up, and that's this, find an open door. Just start checking doors and find the open door. Obviously, God has locked the doors as Sarah is looking for the opportunity that God is going to give her with this baby. And so she begins to check doors and windows, and we say, oh, the door was locked. The door, God does not want me to go that way. And so I check this door, and, and, and here, okay, oh, that one's locked too. And, and all the doors are blocked. All the doors are locked. This must not be what God planned. What I gotta do is I gotta find the open door. I gotta find the opportunity that is, that is open to me, and then take it. When you're trying to figure out what to do, all you gotta do is find an open door. Well, for Sarah and Abram, Hagar was the only open door at that time. And so they went through it. But just because there's an open door, it doesn't mean that God opened that door. There are other people in your life that can open doors. There are other people in your life, and even ourselves, we can create opportunities. That doesn't mean that this is what God's plan was. And just because a door is open, doesn't mean I'm supposed to go through it. I'm walking down the street and I see an open door at someone's house. Well, the door was open. I came in and made myself a sandwich. I, I, I thought you wanted me to come in. It was open. No. That just because my front door is open doesn't mean come on in and help yourself. It's, 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 it's not always that case. Think about Jonah. Jonah found an open door when God told him to go to, to, to Nineveh and to preach. Jonah said, no way, I'm not doing that. 
I don't, I don't want them to, I don't want them to be saved. Basically, that's what he's saying. I don't want them to repent. I want them to burn. Forget the turn. Just burn. I don't want that. And so he runs and flees. He gets on a boat on his way to Tarshish. That, folks, was an open door. Look how, uh, look how divine intervention, or look how coincidental, or how serendipitous, or whatever ta- label or title you want to put on it. That's what that's what Jonah saw and said, "Well, this must be God's will. He must have given me an out, and now I'm I've found the open door I'm going through." Think about David. David didn't go to battle one day. He sent all of his armies ahead of himself. He decides to take a night off. He steps out onto his balcony, looks down, he sees a beautiful woman bathing herself on her rooftop. An open door. Here's an opportunity. I mean, how coincidental that I happen to be standing on the roof at the same time she happens to be bathing on her roof and she's pretty and I'm handsome and I'm rich and I'm the king and and, and let's get together. Let's do this. It's an open door. It was an opportunity, but it doesn't mean it was the right opportunity. It doesn't mean that they were. he was supposed to take advantage of that opportunity. Go back a few years before that, before David became the king. Remember when King Saul was still in charge and he knew that David was going to be the king and he was threatened by that. He was jealous by that. And he was doing his very best to kill David. And on one of the times as Saul was taking his armies out on this, this, this hunt for the, for the, for the, the new king, his competition, David finds himself in the back of a cave hiding for his life. Well, Saul decides to step inside, uh, to get himself, uh, out of the sun and out of the heat and take a nap. And I guess all of his men decide to do the same thing. And here's David in the back of the cave, hiding from the man in the front of the cave, who has no idea that his enemy is just a few feet beyond him. And David and his men sneak out, tiptoeing over the the enemy. And as David passes over Saul, literally his enemy is laying there in front of him. And David is touched, you know, and he's about to trip over this guy. And one of his men says, hey, here's your chance. God has given you an open door. God has given you the opportunity. Kill him now. God has brought him here. He's literally dropped him in, in your lap. In your, he's right at your feet. All you gotta do is take the sword, plunge it into him, and your problem is done, and you can be the king right now. That was an open door, ladies and gentlemen, but that wasn't the right door for him to take. We know that David didn't take it. He said, you know what? No, he's still God's man, and he cut the little piece of his garment off and went away and got to safety before he woke Saul up. Those are open doors, but it doesn't mean that they are what God had intended. The when, the where, and the how are all just as important of God's plan as the what of God's plan. I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning, uh, ladies and uh, married couples, you met uh, maybe in elementary school or in high school. Uh, is there anybody like that? You're married now and you knew each other all the way through? Okay, there's a few of you. All right. You met and maybe you knew she's the one or he's the one, right? Or maybe you hated each other as 11-year-olds and then finally you learned to tolerate each other and so you said, all right, we'll get married. But let's just pick the romantic uh, uh, situations, okay? We fell in love. It was love at first sight right across the snack table in first grade or whatever it was. And we grew up together. And now, uh, we, I mean, we've been married. We've basically known each other our entire lives. And now uh, this is just a you know high school sweethearts or whatever it may be. Let's say you're 12 years old. And you meet her. And you know in your heart, she's the one. Let me just, is there anybody like that? You know, maybe around 12 years old, guys, you met her and you're like, she's the one I'm going to marry. Is there anybody like that? No? Okay. Any ladies like that? No? Okay. How about high school sweethearts? Who are, who are our high school sweethearts? Okay. There's a bunch. There they are. Here's Todd and Kim back there. Uh, Claudia. Uh, not Claudia. Uh, Elaine. Uh, Claudia. Claudia has not met her high school sweetheart. Let's pray and hope right now. Uh, let's, uh, 
Let's, let's, let's take one of, one of these, these couples of examples. Now, you met in high school, and you knew. Maybe God didn't speak a voice from heaven audibly, didn't add another verse to his Bible and say, this is my will for you to marry and spend the rest of your life. But you just knew. But it wasn't time yet, was it? Just because you met the person and you got the who, the when is still a ways off. The where is still not right. And so there's an opportunity. Here's the one. We, we know each other. We might as well get married. We're 12, but we're in love. It's not how it works, is it? You've got to put all the pieces together. You've got to get all the details before you run off with one, one piece of the plan before you decide to, 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 to do something foolish and stupid. And we've seen before where are like, oh yeah, that, 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 they'd be probably great together one day, but they, they get married too early or they do something too soon or too quick and, we, and it blows up and we say, man, you should just, you're, you were 14. It wasn't time yet. I mean, maybe you should have given it some more time or whatever. And that's just one example. These are examples of how opportunities are not necessarily either from God or in God's timing. Maybe God did bring you together. And, and we see that. Many of you, obviously, you know, God blessed that. But he was obviously not saying, here, introduce, let's get married now because I put you two together. Let's go ahead and just cut, cut to the chase here. That's not how we live our Christian life. We don't just find the open door and go through. Yes, look for the open door, but don't just go through it. Because the open door might not be ready for you. The open door might not be the open door for you. Find the open door. That's the first piece of bad advice. And we see that in verses 1 and 2 as Sarah and, and, and her imagination run away and say, well, you know what? Hagar is really the only, the only chance we got now. I mean, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done with kids. and There doesn't seem to be anything else for us. So, might as well just take Hagar. And this should technically be my, or the son will technically be mine. We found our opportunity. Let me, let me show you the next one. That's this. God helps those who help themselves. You like that statement? We've heard that a lot. Well, God helps those who help themselves. And what we mean by that is don't be a lazy bum. Get up and do something. Don't just wait for God to drop something in your lap. Don't just wait for, 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 you know, God to, you know, I need a job and I'm sitting, I say that as I'm sitting on my couch watching Netflix all day. Well, go get a job. I like those things on, well, you see them on Facebook a lot. You know, it says a, a, a pile of money will, will be deposited into your bank account if you, and then sometimes it says click share or type amen. But the ones I like are the ones that say, if you work a job, if you worked last week, Money will be deposited into your account. That's how this stuff works. That, so, but we use that idea too much in saying, well, God helps those who help themselves. That's exactly what Sarah and Abram did. God, your plan is not working. God, your plan is taking way too long. God, your plan doesn't make quite, I mean, it's good. I know you had good intentions, God, but it, it's, it's missing something, meaning me, I'm the wrong person. So let's insert younger Hagar, younger wife, and now it can work. And it did work. Ishmael is going to be born. But that's not what God had intended, was it? Hagar quickly became pregnant and things looked promising for a while. However long it took for Hagar to realize that she had been pregnant, I think that maybe the first time they tried, and hey, it, it works. So we're, you know, just a short time later, 
and in there, oh, this is exciting. There's a baby going to be born. And the excitement, we had three babies born uh, this just this week, and they're all big, giant ones. And and uh, talked to uh, talked to a few of them, and they're they're just, uh, it's happy. And the day, can you go back in your mind when you first found out we're pregnant, we're going to have a baby. It's going to be exciting. And hopefully, Dad was excited, and he didn't fall over and, and faint or whatever. But you, we get excited for those things, even when it happens after like baby number five. Then nobody's like excited anymore for you. Like, hey, we're gonna have a baby. Don't you have like five kids already? Like, oh, you know, we were like the first one or two. Like, yay! And after that, we're like, oh. But, you know, this is the first one. And a baby, this is the impossible baby. This is a 75-year-old dad that's going to that's gonna have a son now, and it's his first one, and this is going to be exciting, and God's promise is finally going to happen. It's finally going to take place. Sarah, you're a genius. You should have thought of this sooner. Why didn't we do this sooner? I mean, we, we had Hagar probably 10 years ago. Why didn't we just figure this out a lot longer? And we could have not put ourselves through all this torture of waiting. But that doesn't last. The Bible says that when Hagar realized that she was pregnant, verse number 4, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. She looked down at her mistress. She realized, Sarah, I did the one thing that you've never been able to do. I've been able to please your husband and fulfill him in a way that you have never succeeded in doing. And that pride of her heart begins to elevate her in her mind at least to the equal of Sarah and maybe to the better of Sarah because Sarah had never been able to do this. We see this happen a couple of times in in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, there was a man named Elkanah and he had two, two wives, Hannah and Penina. And Penina had a lot of kids. She had sons and daughters. Hannah could never have a child. And the Bible calls her her adversary. Because every time it was it was brought up, there was Panina twisting that knife deeper in her heart. She was uh, pouring salt into that open wound of, you can't have kids and I've got a plenty of them. And, and you are barren and I am fruitful. And, and my our husband loves me more because I've given him that which you can never get. Think about, uh, we're going to get to it later on, to Jacob when he had Leah and Rachel. And it's very, very interesting to watch how these sister wives are uh, competing with each other by having babies. That's how they get the affection of their husband. We ha- I have more children than you. you I, he loves me more. And we see the first time, Leah, the unloved wife, the first time she has a baby, and she's the first one to have any child. She goes, now maybe my husband will love me. Because I've given him a son. Well, here's the opposite here. Here's Sarah. I've been with you, Abram, for all of our adult lives. We've known each other. We know each other intimately. But the one thing that you, we both really want, I've never been able to do. And here comes this young, this young girl from Egypt. She's a slave, no less. And she finally gives you a son. And now she's disrespecting me. Now she's looking down on me with contempt. Now she doesn't respect me anymore. Human solutions are no solutions for divine problems. Do you think that God knew that Sarah and Abraham were quite beyond the childbearing years when He came up? Do you think that the angel of the Lord was late in delivering the promise? I was supposed to tell you this back when you were 35 and 25, and I got held up. 
I got distracted. I lost it in all the paperwork. And now I just found the memo I was supposed to deliver to you. I know you're 75 and 65, but hey, better late than never, right? You think that's what was going on? No. God knew exactly how old Abraham was. God knew exactly how dead Sarah's womb was. God knew it was all impossible, and that's exactly why he waited till then. That's exactly why he waited 25 more years to make it even happen. We're, we're 10 years into a 25-year delayed promise. After this story, we've got 15 more years to wait before there's an Isaac. Can you imagine? I talked about this last week, but I cannot imagine waiting 25 years for a promise and only being reminded of it about four or five times. But that's exactly what Sarah and Abraham have to deal with. But when we have a divine problem, human solutions are not the answer. God says, I want, think about it. What, the sin is a divine problem. It's that which separates us from God. And a human solution, Adam and Eve, was put on fig leaves. Walk around and cover up our nakedness with foliage because that will solve the problem. A human problem, the sin is, I must do something to earn back my, my being good graces with God. That's a human solution to a divine problem and it doesn't work, does it? The only solution to a divine problem is the divine solution. It's that which God Himself comes up with. If God presents a challenge, God also presents the way to solve the challenge. If God wants to do something, He will do it. And He will do it His way. And that's that's great for us because that means He doesn't expect us to figure it out for Him. God doesn't come to us and say, man, I've got this, I've got this problem. Maybe you can help. You know, like, you, ladies, you might bring a jar to your husband or maybe husband, you bring a jar to your lady. Like, I got this jar, I just can't open it. Can you help me out? God doesn't come to us with this problem going, man, I really wanted to bless you with this, but I can't get the jar open. Can you figure it out? If God brings something to us, He's got a plan of how He wants you to open it, when He wants you to open it, and where room you're going to be in when you open it. He's already seen it all happen in the, in the span of, in the span of uh, eternity. We don't have to figure that out. All we have to do, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, is follow by faith. God helps those, not those who help themselves, but those who obediently trust and follow Him by faith. Say, okay, God, this doesn't make any sense. But you said this is what's going to happen, and it's very evident that that's where you want me to go, so I'm, I'll do it. This is crazy, but I'll do it. And you step out. That's what stepping out by faith is. It's not figuring it out for God. It's following Him. And God helps those who obediently trust Him and follow Him by giving them more faith to follow Him. We saw that last week. Do you need more faith? Well, do something with the faith you got right now. You say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, look at the next step in front of you. Step there. It's like the headlight thing or flashlight thing. You can't see the whole way, but step into the next piece of light. And the light keeps moving as you move. It's, it's incredible. Technology, it's crazy. And that's how God works. If you want God to show you more faith, step out by faith in what He's given you. And if God hasn't given you more faith, then you stand there and you wait until God says, all right, it's time to move. And if God doesn't say move, we don't move. So no, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who follow Him and leave it to Him. Look at the last one, verse number 6. 
just do what you think is best. That sounds good too. I mean, because it's not do what you think is worse. Do what you think is the most horrible option. Do what you think is best. Look in verse number 6. After all the disrespect and all the contemptuousness and, and all of this stuff, Sarah does not like it. Can you imagine that? She doesn't like being mistreated. And so we get to verse number, uh, verse, well, it's back in verse number 5. Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be on thee. I gave my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. This is, this is uh, the in- unraveling of what they thought was finally working, and now the plan is not working out as smoothly as they hoped to, and Sarah had desperately wanted to get pregnant, and when she knew she couldn't, she wanted Hagar to get pregnant. Think about it. This is, ha- this is Sarah's plan. This is her idea, and yet when it finally happened, she no longer wanted it to be that way. When it happened, it highlighted her own brokenness. It highlighted her failures. I've been trying my entire life and I can't do it and you did it on the first try. Man, it makes me feel awful. Man, it makes me feel like less of a woman. Man, it makes me feel like I am even less valuable than I used to. And she got what she wanted, but then she realized that she didn't really want it anymore. Because now Hagar is disrespecting her. Because every time she sees Hagar walking through the house and that little baby bump is is showing her the morning sickness or whatever, uh, all the effects of a pregnancy, the glow of an expecting mother's face, Sarah realizes that should have been me. If I had never brought this up, that would have never happened. And you see that smug look on Hagar's face. Sarah says, hey, I want you to go and do this. She goes, oh, I can't right now. You know, my, my feet are swollen. I need to put them up. Uh, you know, morning sickness is on. And she's doing everything she can to throw it back in her mistress's face. Sarah feels wrong. She's deeply hurt and probably worse than before. She regrets her decision. She regrets the action that she took, but now she has to place the blame somewhere. She has to put the blame on someone, so who better than on hubby? So she turns to Abraham and says, my wrong be on thee. Now this is not saying this was my fault. This is this wrong there is saying my hurt. This is your fault, Abraham. This wrong that's been done to me? Now wait a minute. Aren't you the one that started this ball rolling? But now you're saying you're the victim? And she's saying, yeah, I'm the victim, and my wrong be on you, Abraham. This is your fault. Why? Because I gave my maid to you, and she got pregnant. My plan worked, and this is your fault. Can you? I mean, that doesn't logic. Now, Abraham, I don't know if this was wise or whatever, but he didn't argue with it. You don't argue with an angry woman, right? If she's if she's looking at you, just learn to say yes, ma'am, and I'm sorry, or uh, just you know, learn to read the body language. Uh, but but here, Abram, he just says this: "I made it in thy hand; do to her as it pleases thee." Now, this is the same idea, the thing that he said at the very beginning, up in verse number, verse number two, when Sarah hatches this crazy plan and comes to him. Notice what it just says: Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. He said, "Okay, if that's what you want to do." Do what you think is best. And that's what he says down here to, to her now. You've been disrespected. You feel wrong. You've been mistreated. You feel disrespected and, 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 and dealt scornfully. Do what you think is best. She's your servant. She's not my wife. She's your servant first and foremost. And you're my wife. And I read some things that some people said this was the honorable thing to do, that he was putting his, his, uh, his, his first true wife over the second one. But what he's saying to her is, do what you think is best, son. 
I don't know what to do. We're in a big mess here. Hunt and go just try your best. But here's the problem with that. What Sarah thought was best wasn't really that great because the Bible says that she dealt harshly with her. It says in verse number 6 there, and it's when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And we don't know exactly what that meant. What, how hardly she dealt with her. Some would say that this was verbal abuse. Some would say that this is even physical abuse. There are some uh, ancient moral and ethical codes and laws that would allow the owners of these servants to punish them and to uh, harshly punish them, to beat them. That wasn't, that wasn't uncalled for. If, if you owned a servant like that and they were being insolent and disrespectful to you, it wasn't out of your uh, uh, jurisdiction, if you will, to beat them. At least in that day, they thought, yeah, it's fine. He's being disrespectful. Whoop him. And so th- that's, not, that's not unlikely here. I don't know how extreme it got, but we do know it was this extreme that in Hagar's mind, she said, it is better for me to take my chances as a single mother in the desert than to stay here under this. I, 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 right now, I'm being fed properly. She's, she's probably getting the best health care that was available during that time. Abraham was a very rich man. She has a, a husband who likes her. She has, uh, she has people around her. She has friends. She's known this life for a while now. But all of that, she said, it is not worth it. I'm leaving and I'm taking my chances out in the desert. I'm going to put my own life at risk in the wilderness. I'm going to put my own baby's life at risk. And she tries to make her way back to Egypt all by herself. That's what Sarah thought was best. Doing what you think is best is the attitude that brought Israel into idolatry and apostasy. In Judges chapter 21, it says, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And all through the book of Judges, we see how people made the dumbest decisions because they did what they thought was best. There was no judge in the land. There was, or there was no priest in the land. There was no uh, uh, prophet that would say, this is what's right and that's wrong. Here's the standard hold to it. They just did what they thought was best. They had good intentions, but it went woefully wrong. God doesn't want your idea of what best is. He wants His idea. I know we sing that song, do then the best you can, not for reward, not for the praise of man, for love. Do your best. He got all God wants is our best. But, and, and, and that's our effort. Do your best effort. But when we're talking about trying to figure out God's will, He doesn't want you to come up with your best idea. He wants His idea because it is better. Hebrews 11, the last verse in Hebrews 11, it says that God had a better plan. He's got a plan. We think we know what is best. But God, who lives outside of time and knows the beginning and the end and the middle and all of it at one time, says, I know exactly the best way to do this if you will just trust and follow me. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but I want you to notice that God is not even mentioned yet. God hasn't been brought up in this. First of all, God didn't come and condemn them, but there was no consulting. Hey, what do you think, God? What should we do about this? They did what they thought was the best thing to do. So no, that's bad advice. Let me leave you with some good advice. You need a motto to live by. You need something. Don't don't choose. Well, follow the open door. Go through the open doors. Uh, do what you think is best. God helps those who help themselves. No. How about this one? Trust God, not yourself. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. 
How about this one? Wait on God. I like how David said it, Psalm 62. I put it in your notes. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He's my defense. I should not be greatly moved. Now, just three verses later, he has to, he said this as a statement, but now three verses later, he's got to convince himself of that because he says in verse five, my soul, wait thou only upon God. I know it up here, but down here, it's really hard to get it from here to here. And so, yes, my soul waits upon God. Now, soul, wait upon God. I got to trust God. This is not working according to my timeline. This is not how I wanted it to be, but it's got to be, it's got to be done God's way. So trust God, not your own understanding. Learn to wait patiently for God. Because Abram and Sarah follow bad advice, there were some consequences. There were some marriage difficulties. There was some, uh, there was a child. This is not, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a, it's a consequence. But we do, we do read that when, when, when God came, we'll see it more next week, that Ishmael would uh, live and grow up and be in constant strife and turmoil with his brother Isaac and all of their descendants. A lot of fighting. The fighting even today that we see is, is a family feud. These are the consequences, the fighting. There's no peace. There's no love. There's no brotherly love. They didn't ruin God's plan, but there were some unnecessary costs and results. So this, this afternoon, this morning, I don't know what kind of advice you like to live your life by, but let me, let me just encourage you. When it comes to God's plan, commit to sticking to that. Don't try to figure that out. Don't try to find the open doors. Or if you do, make sure that before you go through it, it's actually from God. Make sure that you know that this is what God's plan is and not my plan. Trust God that He will reveal Himself in His timing and in His way. And if you find yourself still waiting, settle in. Get comfortable. It's the best thing you can do, right? When you're sitting at the airport and you're waiting for that plane that just got delayed two more hours, you can get mad. You can try to get on another plane. You can go yell at somebody. Or you can just sit back and say, all right, I'm in here. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I wish it would be faster. I'm settling in. Getting comfortable and learning to be okay with not knowing everything. I put this verse in your notes, printed it because I wanted you to see it. Psalm 37, 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. God, here's my life. I'm committing it to You. The direction of my life, I'm giving it to You, and I'm not only giving it to You, but I'm trusting that you take care of all the details. And I'm just along for the ride. Remember when you were a little kid? You didn't, I was, had an interesting conversation this morning. I won't put, give the person's name. But remember when you were a little kid about uh, sitting in the back seat? You didn't have a say-so in when dad turned left or right. The back seat driver? That wasn't, that, that wasn't until you became an adult and then you learn how to drive and then, of course, you're better than the driver. But when you're a little kid, all you do is you just sit back there and just fight with your brother. You know, that, that's all you got to do. You sit and play with your, read your book or play with your iPad or whatever it is. Uh, you don't have to worry about how to get there. I remember when I first started driving, I had no idea where I was going. I had lived there most of my life, but I had never had to drive there. So I didn't pay attention to how to get places. And it took me a long time to figure out how to get places just because as a passenger, the driver took care of the details 
And I just magically showed up 30 minutes later. I got in the car and, hey, we're here. It's always right here. But then I started driving. I had to figure out, oh, you got to figure this stuff out. On the road of my own life, I'm not the driver. I got to get out of the driver's seat and not be a backseat driver. I got to sit there and say, you know where you're going? All right. I'll be on my phone if you need me. That's all God asks from us. Commit your way to Him. Trust He'll take care of it. He will bring it to pass. Now we're going to see that the promised child is going to come. They didn't mess anything up. But because they had followed some really bad advice, there were some unnecessary consequences. There were some unnecessary costs. They could have lived a little smoother of a life had they not gone and tried to help God out, manipulate God's will, speed up God's plan. But they did. They paid the price. Now that same decision is up to us. God has a plan. Are we going to follow it? Or are we going to try to help it out a little? Would you pray with me? Bow our heads. Just for a moment. Reflect on what God is doing in your life right now. What is God asking you to do? Or what has God asked you to do? Or maybe you've been waiting for something. And maybe you haven't got any direction from God. But there's something that you really want. And maybe it is a God-given desire. Maybe it's something that God put into your heart. Or maybe it's just it's, it's just something that you really want real bad. And let me ask the question. Have you included God in any of this? Has God got any say in this? Or have you already made it up? And then you've basically said, God, bless the plan that I have for my life. Because that's not how it works. Abraham and, and Sarah didn't include God at all in this plan of Hagar. and there was, It cost them quite a bit. I think sometimes we make our own plans because we're afraid that God's plan won't be good enough. Or that it is too late. Or too impossible. That's exactly why He lets, lets it be that way. So that when, when men look at it and say, wow, that is incredible. Only God gets the glory. Only God gets the praise and the credit. Holy Spirit is speaking in your heart about something right now. I wonder if you'd just be brave enough, be honest enough with God to say, God, I'm committing my way to you. I'm just going to apply that verse to my life. God, I'm going to commit my way to you. And then I'm going to trust you to take care of the details. I'm not going to run off on my own and do my own thing, even though I might think it's a good thing. Even though I might think it's a bad thing. God, I'm honest enough and humble enough to say that I know you know what you know. You know a lot more than I do.